faithfulness in general is defined a few similar ways. Thorough in the performance of duty, true to one's word, promise, or vow, and steady and loyal in allegiance or affection. Now, one of the things that I love personally about living in the modern era is that you can see some of these significant themes and emotions through different forms of media. Okay, if you know me, you know that I love books, I love movies, I love Harry Potter and The Dark Tower and Lord of the Rings, all kinds of different things like that. And I love when creativity specifically spills out for others to experience and see. That's why you'll hear so many illustrations that I like to use or stories that I tell connecting back to some of these mediums. And faithfulness, specifically in particular, is often portrayed in movies as romantic pursuits, okay? A man or a woman chasing after a love, star-crossed lovers finding a way to be together, intense conflict navigated by the foundation of love. Now think about... Jack and Rose, right, in Titanic. They know, they know each other for only like at most two days, right, two days. But the love that they share, it's so intense that as Jack sits in the water, uh, Rose, so, so that Rose can remain on the floating door, which, by the way, it seems like it was a big door. I don't know, but maybe they both could have fit on it. But ultimately, he gives his life for her, right? He gives his life so that she can be saved, And what does she say to him as she releases him into the darkness of the sea? What does she say? I'll never let go. Okay, I guess three people have seen Titanic in here. It's fine. (laughs) She says, I'll never let go, right? I'll never let go, Jack. She promises to remain faithful to him, to her experience with him in those short hours that they shared together, even in his death. Excuse me. Movies like this, I think, contain intense romantic depictions, right? Depictions that stir our own emotions as we watch them, right? I'm not crying, you're crying. But my question is, what would have happened if Jack and Rose had both made it? Okay, if they had run away together, right, and maybe gotten married in New York? Would they have gotten an apartment together, perhaps? Would they have had to decide what kind of cookware they should buy, okay? Perhaps argued whether it was appropriate for in-laws to visit that weekend. Oh, you want mauve drapes, okay? Interesting choice, wow, hmm, okay, Rose. Would they have made it? Okay, that's the question. And things like this in movies, I don't think that we always see portrayed on a, on a long-term scale. They don't portray the mundane, the daily investment that it takes to remain faithful together in a relationship. It doesn't cover the foundational pieces of what long-standing friendships or romantic relationships are built on. We often see depictions of courtship and the chase and the promises made... But faithfulness is about much more than making promises. It's about keeping promises. So is it, maybe, just maybe, is it easy for Rose in that moment to make a commitment to never let go, okay? And I have to be careful here because Titanic is great. You're not going to hear me bagging on Titanic, okay? Protect Titanic. But this idea, I think, rings true to us. Okay, we make promises and commitments 
all the time. This is a normal part of our lives. We promise to a spouse, perhaps, till death do us part. We sign away our intentions to pay our rent or our mortgage on a monthly basis. We commit to losing weight or adhering to a strict diet, working out, perhaps. We make resolutions to change our lifestyle, to watch less TV, to read more books, to spend more time with the kids, to look at our phones less. Okay, has anyone else been getting these, how often, how regular you look at your phone during the week updates now? It's a little depressing. We make promises, right? We make commitments. We make resolutions. But do we always understand the commitment that those promises entail? This morning, I want to explore that idea a little bit further. When the Bible says that the, one of the fruits of the Spirit is faithfulness, what is it talking about? I want to look at three aspects of faithfulness this morning. The first is the faithfulness of God himself. What is it and how do, is it different than our own understanding or our own experience of faithfulness? Second, I want to look at faithfulness in our own lives. How does faithfulness transform us on the inside? And third, I want to look at faithfulness lived out in the world. How does faithfulness transform the world around us. So let's begin this morning by reading our scripture. We're going to read from two different places. We're going to read from Galatians 5 verses 22 through 23, and we're also going to read Psalm 136, the entire passage. Galatians 5 is going to be uh, read from the ESV, and then I'm going to be reading Psalm 136 from the NIV. So starting in Galatians 5, 22 through 23. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now Psalm 136. And this is a long one, so lock in. It says, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts. His love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, his love endures forever. Who by his understanding made the heavens, his love endures forever. Who spread out the earth upon the waters, his love endures forever. Who made the great lights. His love endures forever. The sun to govern the day, his love endures forever. The moon and stars to govern the night, his love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, his love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them, his love endures forever. With a mighty hand and outstretched arm, his love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea asunder, his love endures forever, and brought Israel through the midst of it. His love endures forever. But swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea, his love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, his love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, his love endures forever. And killed mighty kings, his love endures forever. Forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, his love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, his love endures forever. And gave their land as an inheritance, his love endures forever. An inheritance to his servant Israel, his love endures forever. He remembered us in our low 
estate. His love endures forever and freed us from our enemies. His love endures forever. He gives food to every creature. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven. His love endures forever. Amen. Now, in Jewish traditions, this psalm is known as the Great Hallel, or the Great Psalm of Praise. The repetitiveness here is not intended to be tedious, it's not intended to be annoying, but rather it reveals this psalm's usage as a liturgical, responsive reading. It would have been used in worship services in song-like form, okay? It's intended to be sung. Now, imagine uh, today reading a popular song of our day, and instead of reading it, just, uh, excuse me, instead of singing it, just reading it, right? It would be a little bit of a different experience, right? I can feel your halo, halo, halo. I can see your halo, halo, halo. I can feel your halo, 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 oh, oh. Or perhaps let it be, let it be, let it be, let it be. Whisper words of wisdom. Let it be. Now, this is what we kind of have here, right? This is Psalm 136. It's a repetitive recounting of God's faithfulness to his people. It's a short line ascribing God's faithfulness, both general and particular, followed by a repeated phrase, his love endures forever. Now, this is the normal part. This is a normal part of worship. And it's a repeated theme in the Old Testament, recounting what the Lord has done in the personal lives of those who know him, what he has done for his people as a whole, and what he has done for the whole world. Psalm 136 specifically speaks of God's acts of creation, making the earth, the water, the light, the time, the space, his love endures forever. And then it moves to recounting his dramatic rescue of Israel out of Egypt, which we covered uh, much of in the first half of this year when we talked about Exodus, defeating Pharaoh, parting the Red Sea, and their time in the wilderness. His love endures forever. It mentions the defeat of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, two kings who opposed Israel as they escaped Egypt and were wandering in the desert. (coughs) Excuse me. But the Lord dealt them crushing blows, destroying their entire armies in battle. His love endures forever. And it, cl- it concludes with a catch-all, saying that the Lord remembers those in their lowly state. He frees them from their enemies, and he cares for every creature. His love endures forever. And I wonder if we, too, tend to forget about what the Lord has done for us. How often do we, like the author of this psalm and those who sang it in worship, recount our own stories of the Lord being present with us, of him hearing our cries, of him delivering us, his love enduring forever? When I was born into this world, he was there. When I peed my pants in first grade, he was there. When I won my first track meet, he was there. When I was baptized for the first of three times, he was there. When my first girlfriend broke up with me and my world was shattered, he was there. His love endures forever. When I got into college, when I met my wife for the first time, when I first believed the gospel for myself, when my daughter was in the hospital, when I was so homesick I didn't want to get up in the morning, 
when I found a great mentor, when I lost a great job offer, when I got another job offer, you were there. His love endures forever. It's recounting the faithfulness of God, acknowledging that he knows our steps. He even ordains them along the way. That there was never a point in your life that he did not know you, that he did not see you. When you entered into the world, God looked at you knowing all of the good and all of the bad that you would do, all of the good and all of the bad that you would experience, and he says, I love you. I want you. I want you to be my child. I will love you no matter what you do, no matter what happens to you. One of the reasons that we say that God is so good and so worthy of our worship is because he crosses boundaries. He crosses the line. And he says, you don't feel likable? Well, I like you. You don't feel like you're worthy of being noticed? I see you. You aren't strong enough to carry the weight of your own sin and pain? I will carry it for you. The story of God, the message of the gospel, is all about his faithfulness. First and foremost, we aren't the stars of the story. We aren't the main characters, yet he chooses that we be a part of it anyway. Christ is the star, and he is the one that rescues us. And Psalm 136 is a testimony to that foundational gospel truth, that God has brought us from afar, out of spiritual darkness, into the light of his fatherly love and care. It's a witness for how he has provided, how he has rescued us once and for all in Christ. And how he continues to rescue us in the midst of our pain and struggles and unfaithfulness over and over again. It's what makes Jesus' statement about being the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, so practical and true in our lives. He was there before, during, and after everything that we've gone through. We who make up the church of God's people, even this specific church here this morning, we are a diverse group of people with differing experiences and different stories, all of which reveal aspects of his faithfulness to us. Now, this picture of faithfulness, I think, is slightly different from the faithfulness that we perceive in our own lives. It's in the context of relationships that we most often judge faithfulness. In a close relationship, a close friendship, and even in a marriage, I think we logically think through the lens of, I will love and respect you if you love and respect me. If you act trustworthy, then I will trust you. If you do what is expected of you, then I will in turn do what is expected of me. <clears throat> Relationships are, in many ways, completely based on faithfulness. It's human nature to wait for the other person to work, to prove their worthiness. If I do the right thing, then you should do the right thing. This doesn't usually work quickly or easily. <coughs> Excuse me. Stephen, can you bring my water bottle up from the back? This is awkward. <coughs> I'm dying. Um, <coughs> what was I talking about? Okay. Now, that is why Paul sets a foundation, right, for uh, uh, the closeness of relationship of marriage in Ephesians 5.21. Thank you, my friend. 
Stephen made a joke earlier that he was going to stand up here and be like my concert piano, like, page flipper. But just the water's fine. Oh, yes. All right, going to transition out of this so well. All right. I'm going to say the last thing I was just saying. Relationships, okay, are in many ways completely based on faithfulness. We think, if you do the right thing, I'll do the right thing. And that is why Paul sets the foundation for marriage in Ephesians 5.21 by saying, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, a deep relationship is going to struggle, guaranteed, outside of the foundation of being built on the faithfulness of God himself, because God's faithfulness is different from the faithfulness that we can conceive of or have the ability to give. God is the only being, he's the only thing, the only one that is wise enough, powerful enough to realize all that goes into keeping a promise, all that encompasses steadfast commitment. God's faithfulness is different. It's not like a wedding that we might attend. It's not like trying to lose weight. It's not like trying to keep to a new diet. It's not like roses I'll never let go. And if that is the faithfulness of God, if that's the kind of commitment and promise keeping that he does, what does that mean for us? What does it mean that his faithfulness transforms us? And how is faithfulness a fruit of the Spirit that plays itself out in our lives? If faithfulness is a fruit of the Spirit, then that means that it is a result of the Spirit working in us. That's what we talked about last week. We talked about how the roots of the tree are what causes the tree to bear fruit, rather than the effort of literally nailing pieces of fruit to a tree with no roots. Rootedness for the Christian happens when we have saving faith in Christ and the Spirit then takes up residence inside of us, in our souls, in our inner beings, in our hearts. And it is the prerogative of the Spirit himself to bring about the fruit in our lives. We participate in that work. So it's the same with faithfulness as it was with goodness, right? God moves us with his story, his faithfulness to us, his consistency and reliability. His faithfulness moves us towards faithfulness. It starts with his story. It starts with the gospel, the proclamation that Christ has overcome sin and death. We are invited into that story. And what happens over time is that we grow in our faithfulness, our own ability to believe and trust in him. Faithfulness is believing that God is who he says he is in his word in the Bible. Faithfulness is continuing to believe despite the emotional ups and downs of life. Functionally, that means that we trust what God says in the Bible over and above what we see with our own eyes in this world. We trust in his promises that he is working all things out for our good, for those who trust in him. That's from Romans 8, 28. That's a hard truth to swallow. We trust that he will return, making all things new and ending our experience of sin and death once and for all. We trust that our experience here in this life, on this earth, is minuscule in comparison to our future experience in heaven. 
And the only way that we can have such faith, the only way that we can believe these things to be true is because of the influence of the Holy Spirit within us. He testifies to these truths. He compels us towards closeness with God. It is the Spirit that gives growth of the fruit of faithfulness in our lives. But this doesn't happen overnight, does it? Nor is it an unwaning and perfect faithfulness on our end. It's a seed that grows slowly over time, over a lifetime of faith, and a lifetime of disappointment and excitement, frustration, victory, maturation, and defeat. If we're trying to build our faith on a foundation of anything other than the foundation of the gospel story, then it is like kicking the tires in the mud. If we don't know how God feels about us, then why should we be motivated to submit to him and to the spirit within? If we don't realize that Jesus himself hung on the cross and faced the wrath of God for sin on our behalf, then any attempt of faithfulness is just legalism. It's an attempt to earn God's favor, an attempt to impress him with the righteousness that we attempt to own on our, on our, as ourselves. In John 6, Jesus is teaching a great crowd about gospel truths. He's teaching them about himself. And this is just one day after that he feeds the crowd of 5,000 with two fish and five loaves. And he's telling them that he himself is the bread of life. He is the manna that rains down from heaven to feed the souls of humanity, to call them home to where they belong. You can't earn it. It's a gift that only the Son of God can give. But many in the crowd, they do not accept this teaching, and so they leave. They don't believe in what he's saying. And then he turns to his disciples, those who have traveled with him and have been closest with him. And he says to them, do you want to go away as well? And Peter looks at him and he responds by saying, Lord, to whom shall we go? Only you have the eternal, the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is a beautiful picture here, a simple picture of faithfulness. Peter isn't breaking down the complexity of the teaching that Jesus just gave. He isn't parsing the ins and outs of everything that he knows and, and the understandings uh, that he has uh, come to know in following Jesus. He acknowledges that he doesn't fully understand. He acknowledges that this is a hard teaching. But he also acknowledges that he has nowhere else that he could turn, nowhere else that he could go to receive the words of eternal life. There is no other holy one of God. He's got nowhere else to go. And that line in that form was made famous in the 1982 film, An Officer and a Gentleman. Anyone seen it? Two nods. Titanic, start with Titanic, it's fine. But An Officer and a Gentleman, okay, right? It's about a man with a painful past who joins the Naval Officer Training Program, Okay. And the line comes in a climactic scene in which the main character, Mayo, is being berated by the drill instructor, Sergeant Foley. And Sergeant Foley brings up every reason that Mayo should quit. He brings up his mother, who took her own life. 
his alcoholic father who abandoned him, his affinity for cutting corners, how he cheats at things like bunk inspection, all of it. And he is urging him to quit. He's urging him to drop out of the program, saying, give me your D-O-R, which stands for drop on request. It's an official, I quit, I'm out. To which Mayo, being played by a young Richard Gere, responds, I've got nowhere else to go. I've got nothing else. It's a realization for both his character and for the audience that if what he's in right now doesn't work out, if he quits, if he leaves the program, that he's got nothing else. No family that cares for him, no friends, no job, nothing. It's just numbness and drunkenness. He's got nowhere else to go. And it's that sentiment, that simplicity, which is at the heart of true faithfulness. The Spirit gives to us over time, and often through trial and discomfort, that belief. It's what Peter proclaims when Jesus asks them if they too want to leave because of a hard teaching. It's what we cling to by faith in the dark nights in our own souls. It's what we learn as we walk through life of faith, especially when it's hard. <clears throat> and it's not a blind faith. It's not an unfounded conviction. It's a realization that our hope is in something beyond ourselves, beyond what we can see, beyond what we can touch. Our hope is in a God that is completely and utterly faithful to us as we're surrounded by a world that says differently. It's a trust that the Lord is who he says he is, even as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And in that way, we are transformed from the inside out through participation with the Holy Spirit in bringing about the, faith, the fruit of faithfulness. By leaning into and asking the hard questions, by walking in this life of faith, by seeking out the Lord in the midst of our doubts and confusions, we slowly begin to change. We begin to seek the Lord. We begin to want to be part of something as weird and awkward as a church. We begin to participate in Christian community. We learn more about ourselves and we learn more about the Lord. Faithfulness begins to produce more faithfulness. Am I faithful all the time? Absolutely not. But are we slowly growing in hope and faithfulness? Yes, I believe that we are. I believe that we can be a little bit more faithful now than we used to be because we have seen the Lord work. We've experienced the work of the Holy Spirit. We've watched Jesus transform ourselves and others around us. And I think that many in this room would testify as well to the Lord's faithfulness over time. But this faithfulness doesn't only have personal implications for us. It doesn't only change us, but the fruit of faithfulness transforms the way that we interact with the world around us. Psalm 136 is a reflection of God's faithfulness to his people. It reminds them, and by proxy it reminds us, of the ways that the Lord has been steadfast in his devotion to us. He has kept his promises and will continue to keep his promises. He's a worthwhile father that we can trust. Jesus is a safety net that we can put our hope in. 
the Spirit is proof that we are being transformed. And these truths, these gospel teachings, open the door to, to us blessing the world around us. Blessing is a category that we often think about only in our own personal lives, right? The way that God blesses us. <clears throat> but it has further reaching implications than just internally. It changes the way that we serve and love all of God's creation around us. Psalm 37 is filled with the reflections of David about God and about the world that he lived in. He acknowledges, and this is Psalm 37, not 136, not to get anything confused. David acknowledges that those around him do evil and they seem to prosper. He recognizes that the earth is filled with death and decay, with sin and sting. And it's in verse 3 of this psalm that we see the phrase, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. That specific phrasing come from the, coming from the New American Standard Translation. And I love what it encourages God's people to do. It says, put your hope in the trustworthiness of the Lord and seek to do good. Live in the place that God has you and cultivate faithfulness. Cultivate faithfulness. It's a simple encouragement, yet it's one that Christians have struggled to do well in the places that we have dwelled. It's a call to investment, to commitment. It's a call to be faithful, specifically to a place, a location. And we receive that encouragement as part of our mission in participating in God's story. He has called us out of darkness into his light, not to keep it to ourselves, but to share it. We're called to share the gift of faithfulness that we have received and experienced through our relationship with Jesus. It's saying, it's testifying, it's speaking words into the places that God has put us. Investing in the lives of those who we cross paths with. Being faithful because we have been shown faithfulness. Our stories, our personal testimonies are ones of being orphans who became children. God sees us in our needy state and he calls out to us, I will be your father, I will love you, I will care for you. I will show you steadfastness and faithfulness. And in turn, we are now called to be vessels of that very faithfulness, messengers of the gospel, bearers of the love that we have been shown. We talked about cultivation and gardening last week as we broke down the picture that the Bible paints when it says that the blessings of the Spirit are like fruit, like peaches. And in faithfulness, just as with kindness and goodness, we are called to cultivate. And cultivation is a time investment. We don't plant seeds and see growth the very next day. And I keep coming back to this idea time and time again that this doesn't come natural to us. Patience isn't a natural thing that comes to us. So cultivating faithfulness in the land means that we have to do something uncomfortable. We have to commit over time. In our relationships, both inside and outside the church, we are inspired by God's faithfulness to persevere. We dedicate ourselves to faithfully loving and serving. We cultivate faithfulness by being there, by being present for more than just a single moment. I'm not saying that every single thing 
that we need to do in the name of ministry has to involve a marital-like lifetime commitment. However, the temptation for us is rarely to overdo our dedication, but rather the temptation is to quickly move past and through things. In experiencing the faithfulness of God, let us be inspired. Let us be inspired to toil, to sweat, to labor in love for one another. Let us find the ways that we can love and serve our neighbors. Let us find ways that we can show the faithfulness of God by our words and by our actions. Let us commit to being there week after week, year after year in the lives of others. God is a promise keeper, and in his character, we find inspiration to act as his representatives in this world, faithfully showing up. And in doing so, we participate in the Lord's work of transforming his people and the world around us. We stand with the Lord against those who seek to tear down. We stand with people who desire justice. We enter into the lives of orphans who don't know the Father that we know. And we reflect his love and faithfulness. We tell them of the God who is desperately wanting to bring them home. I want to conclude this morning with a reading. It's something that I wrote that was motivated by Psalm 136. So this isn't scripture. This is the JBV, Jacob Beach Version. It's not, it's not the Bible, I promise. Now, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand and participate with me by responding after each line with, His love endures forever. And I want to invite you as I'm reading the leader lines, to think of the ways that you personally might write a similar testimony to God's faithfulness in your own life, how he has remained steadfastly dedicated to you, and how the Lord was present and is present with us in the midst of trial. So please stand, and I'm going to invite you to close your eyes if that is okay. And allow these words to speak to your heart. I'll read a line. It'll be short, and you'll know to respond, everyone together, with his love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Give praise to the Son who gives life everlasting. Honor and glory to the Spirit who fills us with faith. To the Lord who has brought us up out of darkness. To the Lord who has brought redemption to his people. To the Lord who created all that we see and experience. He knew us before we drew breath. He knew us as children. And he is with us now. He walks with us in the midst of turmoil and strife. When we feel lonely and afraid, when we doubt his goodness and care, when death strikes closest to us, when dreams are shattered, when expectations are unmet, in the midst of my unfaithfulness, when I drank too much, 
when I mistreated my family, when our father left us, when my mother died, when I couldn't find a spouse, when I avoided my neighbors, when I was down to my last month's rent, when we couldn't conceive a child, when I never wanted to go back to church, when I lost my job, when I kept my job but I hated it, when the Lord felt furthest away, He remembers us at our worst. He brings freedom to those who are enslaved. He feeds and nourishes our souls. His greatness knows no equal. His grace and mercy sustains us. He gives peace and rest. In the midst of our imperfection, he is perfect. By faith, we can know a new father. Give thanks to the Lord, the God of heaven. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for being who you are in our lives. We thank you for being faithful to us, for loving us, for entering into the difficulty and the pain and the frustration of our lives. And Lord, there's safety in knowing that you are present. Lord, that you are steadfast in your love and in your dedication and in your care for us as a loving Father. And Lord, I pray that we would see and understand that faithfulness, Lord, even only in part, Lord, even impartial as we grow in faith. And Lord, I pray that that faithfulness would motivate us to faithfulness. Lord, that we know that we can be faithful to you because you were faithful first to us, that you loved us first. You loved us first. And you invite us in. You rescue us. You continue to deliver us, Lord, in our unfaithfulness, Lord, in our imperfections, Lord, in our fallen, broken states. You are faithful. In your name I pray. Amen.